Hello and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Talbot. Hi, Frank. Good to see you. How are you? Very well, thanks. Yeah, really, uh, really happy to talk about our next guest. Yeah, well, hang on. I want to talk about you for a little bit more. How's uh, <laughs> how the luscious fields of, of Kent? How's, how's, it's rained, how's England? It's rained incessantly for two weeks. We've got some serious flooding concerns after our drought in the summer. Climate change, who knew? Yeah, who knew? So look, today on the pod, we've got a, another great guest uh, in the form of Andrew Beer. Andrew is the lead portfolio manager, I believe founder, managing member of Dynamic Beta Investments, which is now part of I Am Global Partner. And he runs what is currently at least a very successful managed futures strategy and ETF in the US. Uh, and he was great company, Frank. Great company. He's done very well recently, taken a lot of assets. We actually spoke to him a week ago and he was short everything pretty much in his managed future strategy, quite open about that. There was one um, thing he was tries, long, wasn't there? there was, it just, was it just oil? Was the only thing? Tiny, like 5% long in, in, in crude oil. Um, but he tries to replicate uh, successful hedge fund strategies using highly liquid futures. Um, he talks with, with great fluency about what not to do in a bubble, what to do, speaking from, from experience, having learned the hard way. Uh, right now, that, that to me is extremely valuable, or maybe it would have been a few months ago. But if you, if you listen on, I think he feels it's going to last a bit longer. Clearly, sure, everything. I thought it was brilliant on this, you know, making the point that, look, it's one thing to identify these things, uh, see sort of the macro uh, wins, direction of travel, but quite another thing to necessarily implement that in a way to make money. Obviously, this year, he is managing to do that, but he's, as you said, very candid about a time that he didn't get that right property bubble back in sort of 06, 07, 08. And he was very much on the wrong side of that. And there's now a whole state in America that he's, you know, too, too scarred to visit. So, yeah be warned i suppose of course before we get to andrew beer we have our not so new now segment it could be worse with jamie catherwood which is somewhat relevant as this week of course it's been the the midterms in the us and the focus of today's history lesson is all about politicians losing their money so over to you jamie it's tough to watch a former president and Civil War general get duped out of his entire fortune, but this is exactly what happened to Ulysses S. Grant. Grant left office in 1877 and spent two years traveling across Europe and Asia with his wife after he wanted to take a break from the stressful life of political office. As you can imagine, this was a very expensive adventure. So when Grant and his wife finally returned home, Grant needed to find a money-making opportunity. Ferdinand Ward appeared at just the right time to take advantage of this former president. Ulysses was introduced to Ward by his son, Buck Grant, who had been duped by Ward into thinking that Ward possessed masterful investing skills. Believing there was an exciting opportunity, Buck and Ferdinand launched a firm together, Grant and Ward. Ferdinand's real motive, however, was to partner with Buck so that he could leverage his father's notoriety to gain legitimacy and popularity. Ulysses became equally fooled by Ferdinand and invested nearly all of his wealth into the Ferdinand and Grant firm. The truth, however, was that Ferdinand Ward was just a below average speculator. Instead of generating large returns in the market, Ward was raising money from other investors by telling them that he was securing coveted government contracts through Ulysses' connections. Using this method, Ward was able to temporarily pay out sizable dividends, which assured investors like Ulysses that he was a good investor. Eventually, however, the music stopped. Ward lost all the firm's capital speculating in the market and was forced to go to Ulysses for a large loan. Grant did not have the money and went to convince the Vanderbilt family to provide the loan. After receiving that loan, Ferdinand Ward vanished, disappeared into the night. 
Ulysses S. Grant and Firm's other investors were left ruined. Although Ward was eventually caught and punished, the former president spent the rest of his years writing a memoir in efforts to recover his losses. The memoir would prove successful, but Grant would not live to see it and enjoy the riches, as he passed away from throat cancer just days before he finished the draft. Thank you very much, Jamie, for that very interesting, although also slightly depressing tale. Uh, and now, without further ado, Andrew Beer. Well, 2006, I made my one and only real uh, investment in U.S. real estate, and and I think between the time that we saw, finally signed the papers and uh, 48 hours had passed, we'd probably lost every penny. Uh, and um, uh, you know, I think I think it's one of those things where I look back on it, and um, it, just a couple things are so clear in retrospect. Um, one is the extent to which bubbles can anesthetize you that you know they just go on and you've got skeptics who are lining up and if you'd asked me in 2005 i probably would have said um uh you know that real estate was overvalued just not not as somebody who was in the space but just you know, general observation how long it had gone on for all the kind of statistics and um but in 2006 i was presented with an opportunity to do a deal and uh and i thought we were doing it at a discount i mean i had been started my career you know, on the investment side working for a guy named seth Klarman, who you know famously talked about intrinsic value and I looked at where we could buy this thing relative to where things were at the time, and it was cheap. And, um, and you know, in retrospect, it wasn't, obviously. And that it was, um, you know, sort of, it was, it was very, very much of a bubble phenomenon. And so I think just the power of bubbles is something that I took away from it. And so just, just so we're clear, so this wasn't you and, and the wife buying a, buying a home. This was, this was a, this was a, a investment investment. This, this was professional. Exactly. Investment. Yeah, so I... What, what can you... What was it? Can you share it? Sure. So, um, so in in uh, the U.S. Southeast, uh, there were vacation homes that people were buying, and you know what happens when these bubbles expand is they start to drive up all these marginal, uh, uh, you know, previously uh, irrelevant assets like like you know dog themed crypto assets and and you know meme stocks and things like that. And, uh, and so we're presented with an opportunity to basically put together an investor group and buy a whole bunch of land that, you know, what we thought it was probably, we we're buying it at half of what it, what, what it was worth based on, on recent prices. And so I put together an investor group. I threw a lot of my own money into it and it was all family and friends. It was a small deal. Um, and, uh, best, best and, people to have on board if things go south, right? I mean, that's... well, yeah. And I got to call them all like a month later and I was like, you know, your only consolation is I lost five times as much as you did. Uh, um, but, it, but, but, you know, I think, I think looking back on it and, and this is obviously something I've seen, uh, at various times in my career, these regime shifts when they go on or these, you know, these, these bubbles, when they expand people, you just run out of people who are skeptics. Um, you know, even at the time, I mean, to put you, show you how schizoid it was, we were invested with a guy named Michael Burry on another business that I had started. And, you know, that guy almost didn't make it to the actual final collapse of the housing market. I mean, he was losing so much money waiting for this trade to happen. In fact, there were guys early on betting against the housing market who never made it to, you know, to the victory parade. In fact, a lot of the guys who did the best, like, like John Paulson, were very late to the game. And, you know, I think when you hear, when you read about people shorting tech stocks or making money on crypto going down or, or various things, it's, it's often the guys who, you know, who, who are, are piggybacking off of the work that other people had done, uh, before them. Um, in, in, in my case, I knew better. And I think, you know, the other side of it is, is I wanted to believe 
that this was a good investment. It was something I wanted to do. And when you want to do something, you tend to suspend disbelief and, you know, look for things that'll confirm your thesis. And, and, you know, that's, it's a mistake I've made before. It's, I try not to make it again. Frank, you, you look as though you wanted to come in here. Couple of questions. You said this was 2006. Yep. And, and it took 48 hours for it, for it to be actually <laughs> worth it. Or you I'm exaggerating? exaggerating. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but it, it was, it was, um, uh, it, it, it happened very, very fast uh, relative to what, I mean, when you're buying land at, on an unleveraged basis, you think it's not going to go, how could it possibly go down 80 or 90%? And, you know, it, it turns out that, you know, that, that the land of a piece of, even though you're buying something that is unleveraged, it is in fact very leveraged. It's leveraged to, you know, people buying a piece of land for a second home, which means that if the value of the first home goes down, this one is going to go down more. Um, if construction costs rise, then you know the the value of the land goes down as well. So it was, it, it was it was basically a, it was a lesson in in a lot of implicit leverage in it, and and I think that's kind of what you're seeing in many of the markets today is that, um, uh, you know, valuations I think just got bananas in the 2010s, and it's going to take years to work through this. And did you, I assume you tried to exit this position quite quickly after, I mean, it became illiquid where it was, it, it was I, property. It was, I mean, at, at that point, once, once you own it, it's, it's your problem. And it was just kind of a slow unwind, um, uh, at that point. Um, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, looking back on it, um, uh, I, I did a lot of due diligence, right? I'm not a, a thoughtless investor. This wasn't a, a, a fly by night operation, but 99% of the people that I spoke to were neck deep in real estate. And, and those guys had been making money over the past several years, you know, so if you, if you were to get Kathy Wood and five other guys and, you know, who are the guys at, at, uh, Dennis Lynch and Morgan Stanley and a whole bunch of other people who had been printing money on tech stocks and you got, and that was your due diligence. And you said, you know, is Coinbase worth whatever it's worth? Is this company worth, are they going to change the world? You know, you're going to get 10 yeses. And, and I remember, you know, I remember one conversation that I had with, a real estate investor who wasn't in the area. And he raised questions about it. He basically said, look, you're, t you know, he basically raised this question. He said, you're talking to guys who are in the space. And, um, you know, he said, have you talked to people who weren't in it? You know, have you talked to guys who, who, who are selling? Have you talked to find the guys who hate this idea and, and go down that path as far as you can. And, you know, I think the other thing, and I think this is something that people will also take away from the 2010s, is, is this idea of, you know, you want to believe it, right? And I remember, I remember when he told me that things, I, I knew intellectually that he was right. And I could feel like a little bit of a pit in my stomach. George Soros used to say that he could tell a trade was going bad first by getting an ache in his back before it, it kind of made sense to him. And, but, you know, but the train was going, the deal train was going, the investors were lined up. I had to kind of go to the next step. And, 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 um, so so I think I think it's you know confirmation bias and living in an echo chamber is a, is a huge problem say, that everybody sort of faces. Due diligence in an echo chamber is, I'm sure, something that a lot of people. Yeah, to, whenever I, and when everybody has skill, it's skin in the game, you know. Yeah, I have, I have one more question on specific to this thing is. So I feel we've evaded this, but where was where was this land? <laughs> it was in west in Western North Carolina, Western <laughs> North Carolina, and what and what and it was to build second homes on, or it was. Um, sort of yeah, commercial property I mean, or what, what, what was the plan with it? It was all going to be second homes. It was basically plots of land in a beautiful area, uh, right up in, uh, in the blue mountains, uh, gorgeous views. Um, you know, everything had been 
gone up, you know, five x in in the areas, and and you know, we were buying this at only up two or two x or three x, and I, and so we were going to take the land, we were going to subdivide it and sell it off, and people would then put up their dream second homes on it, and and um, you know, it, it wasn't irrational from a, from an investment perspective. It's just, it's it's you know, when the bubble started to unwind, it takes everything down. These things, the land didn't drop twenty percent. You know, which was kind of my entering assumption, the land went down eighty or ninety percent, and then when you put down, when you when you factored in other things, it just you know it essentially became a zero. Have you been back to the the scene of the massacre since? No, <laughs> refuse to take any meetings in the state of North Carolina just on on principle. I stay I stay on the east side of the state now. <laughs> With the lessons that you learned here and, and have observed since, where else are you sort of perhaps seeing? Uh, Actually, the biggest bubbles or places where you think, Jesus, I you know I just I couldn't put anything. Well, I think I think, I, you know, right I, think now. I think what you saw in real estate, like I think the GFC and the dot com crisis and and this year all have something in common, which is we're we're in the midst of a massive regime shift. Um, and and going back to this point about it bit being anesthetized, I cannot wait for the books about the 2010s. Right? There are going to be stories of really, really smart tech guys. And I always have this, I, I imagine the guys at Tiger Global are sitting around in a room and, you know, and one guy says, um, you know, we thought we were overpaying when this thing was at a $10 billion valuation, just went public at a $70 billion valuation. Should we sell? And, you know, and somebody else in the room is going to say, but where do we put it? What do we do? You know, our clients expect us to own this stuff. It's, it's, it's not, not dissimilar to what you saw with the, um, uh, you know, book like Too Big to Fail, where you had these great anecdotes about the height of the crisis and and people just you know needing to believe this stuff the people who succeeded in it um so you know i think i think we're going to look back on it and say we actually had 15 trillion dollars of negative yielding bonds around the world you know we had people were buying 10 year double a corporate debt at a one and a half percent yield um that you know tech stocks there were how how many ev companies that had $50 billion plus valuations and no sales. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's, we're just going to look back on it and say, you, I mean, the dot-com crisis was, was, was amateur hour compared to this, you know, a dog themed coin that had a $300 billion market cap or something. I mean, it's just, it's just lunacy. And so I think, I think what happens is you've got a lot of people who are anchored to it. They made a lot of money in it. They've told their clients, they've constructed their businesses around it. And it's very, very hard for them to kind of release that white knuckle grip. So what have you, so what do you, okay, and we'll come on a little bit to how you run money on a day, day basis, but, but, but from a personal point of view, then if you're, obviously it's easy to say some of this stuff or easier to say some of this now that we're seeing, you know, um, I think things drop and, but, but obviously people had concerns about this, you know, people have pointed some of these things out for, for a long time before, as you, as you said, perhaps being too early on it though, you don't, <laughs> you don't make as much, what do you do in that time? What did, you know, what, what would, I suppose literally what did you do? You know, the last sort of five years when you see these valuations go higher and higher and higher and you're very, very skeptical. What 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 can you do? Do you just well, so ride I, it and hope to get out in time? <laughs> yeah, so well, I mean I I've I've spent the past decade plus actually planning for a different regime shift. Um, which is a, a regime shift. I mean, there there's been a huge regime shift in the hedge fund world. And and in that, you know, you a, an entire industry grew up around supporting and promulgating hedge funds as these mysterious, um, uh, you know, inaccessible, um, you know, sort of magical alpha generation machines. 
And I, I just have, for a long time, I just haven't grown up in the industry. I just haven't. And I think people who have been in the industry for a long time just think that's, you know, sort of the, the myth versus reality. It worked. <laughs> it worked. I mean, everybody, it's, uh, you know, if you find somebody who started in the business in 2000 versus somebody who started looking at the space five years ago, they have very different views on this. Um, and, but, but what I think, what I think is going to happen is, um, is that there are certain hedge fund strategies that have tremendous diversification bang for the buck. So, you know, in a, in a world where 60, 40 portfolios go up every year, you don't need them, right? Who needs them in a, in a rising market? But in a year like this, you take something like managed futures, which is up 25 or 30%, and it's built for a time like this, then the question is, you know, shouldn't that be in, 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 in everybody's portfolio? You know, shouldn't it be stocks, bonds, and managed futures, or stocks, bonds, real estate, and managed futures, um, stocks, bonds, commodities, gold, and managed futures? And so on the personal side, um, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been waiting for that moment, basically, and building, building toward that. But it's been a lonely place for for ten years. If 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 you'd taken that view, if you'd had that sleeve in managed futures, I mean, there there have been moments, but until recently, the going hasn't been as good. Yeah. So so we we're very targeted in what we do. So first of all, um, we came at managed futures not as managed futures guys, right? So there there's this great um, interview with Steve Jobs, and he's talking about Apple, and he's being criticized by engineers for not having enough features in the products. And he and his response is, "You're right, but you can either get the engineers in the room and they'll build the product that they want, or you sit down with the customers and try to figure out what the customers want, and then get the engineers in the room to build it." We were both the customers and the engineers, so so we built products that we think actually get you the benefits without a lot of the drawbacks and headaches, and we put it into in the U.S. We put it into ETFs, but we have. Uh, use its funds in Europe as well. And the idea is basically, if you want the diversification benefits of hedge funds, you can't come at it straight on. You got to find a way to, uh, to, to, to take a step back, think a little bit differently about how to access it and in a low cost client friendly way and make it available to the masses. Because honestly, in, in the hedge fund world, democratization has been great for the guys who launched the products and lousy for the guys who put the money in. Well, that's that's, that's a, a, a neat segue actually, which, which is to sort of you know, obviously, what you're trying to do is, as as you say, replicate the good, the good, the good parts of hedge funds, not the bad parts. Um, it's obviously a world that you know very well. What what do you think? You know, coming back to our theme of mistakes, what do you think are some of the main things that more conventional hedge funds have you know got wrong for investors? I'm not talking specific calls. I guess I mean sort of more sort of structure and sort of approach. And as you say, sort of come for want of a better phrase down market to the retail space but but retail investors haven't necessarily got a got a got a great deal out of that and is that just because they're getting worse funds is it just because of the fees what what sort of what the strategies what's what, what's gone wrong there so i actually i don't think hedge funds have gotten it wrong i think allocators got it wrong okay um and and i think what happened was we've had this 15-year history of what's called the liquid alts world where people took hedge fund strategies and they dropped them into mutual funds or usage funds or occasionally ETFs, very few ETFs. And, you know, back in 2014, I wrote a paper, which again, going back to this whole thing about confirmation bias, it's don't ask the guy who's building the product, whether it's going to work. Ask the five guys who looked at building the product and wouldn't do it. And, you know, ask the hedge funds who said, uh, you know, gee, when we look at building our own mutual fund, it's a lot harder than it looks when you're dealing with mutual fund constraints. So we decided not to do it. And, and so I think actually, I mean, I think the whole 
democratization has been, um, you know, an effort to create products that are much more expensive than people would otherwise buy, but but put a lot of kind of hope and and um, and you know kind of link them to this sort of mythology of hedge funds, and then sell them to investors, and then you know if it doesn't work out two years later, then try to get them to move to another product that has been working well. It's kind of a, it's very much of a hot dot culture. Um, I mean, Morningstar has a great study where basically says that that hot dot culture has destroyed every dollar that people would have made in the space by chasing the guys who were just doing well. That that gap between the investor return and just just trying to move yeah. the wrong time. Huge, four hundred basis points in the space. And so so it's been more so yes, it's been more sort of a proliferation of of, of liquid alts, but that haven't haven't delivered. That's been the issue, and and then allocators good chasing them at the wrong time, going into them at the wrong time, selling out of ones that might yeah, be better. Because, cause, right, because when you take, take a step back, the whole wealth management and asset management industry has a vanguard problem, right? There is no other major industry where you have somebody who says, we're going to do it for cost. Profits be damned, right? And so, so it creates this very, very big distortion in the business where anybody who has a value-added service is, is compared to somebody who does it essentially for free. And so... You know, in that, so so there are a lot of people who say, all right, I need these kinds of investments in my portfolio to differentiate myself from that. Uh, there are asset managers who are feeling price competition on their on their normal actively managed mutual funds, and they say, wow, I can charge 150 basis points on this one, while I'm face, fa- facing price competition on my long only large cap stock funds. And and so um, you know what you get is this kind of it's again it's one of these industries that's built around product creation, product proliferation, and then selling them to, um, uh, you know, basically finding people who will then, who will then buy them. And you know, the end result is if you look at the overall hedge funds in daily liquid wrapper structures, the thing it's done less than 2% per annum over the past decade during a raging bull market. That's after probably around 200 basis points in fees. It is a, it is, it is an absolute embarrassment for the asset management industry that they didn't do better for people. Do you think uh, there's any hope for for liquid alts? Are they going to have their their day? Be, by suppose, well, beyond this year. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I, th- I talk to a lot of people who invest, who invest, and people learn and people get smarter, right? I mean, going back to, I mean, if you had the guys who invest in an ETF that we run in the U.S. who've been you know were early adopters of it, they would start mistakes with made were, were were made with with describing having bought somebody who thought they thought was representative of the whole space, and then you know coming off a great a great run, and then did terribly, and and what that meant for them and their businesses. Um, so people are getting smarter, and 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 I hope that the products that are launched are better and more client friendly. Um, there are a lot of constraints though. If you're an asset management firm. And you know, and your job is to create new products. You're going to create new products, not what you think is the very best product that's definitely going to work, but you're going to create products you think you can sell. And you know, and we've had competitors in this space who've raised far more money than we did. And when I looked at the products, I said, "You got to be kidding me!" Like there's there's nothing behind it, and really, really smart guys were buying it. But why? Because they wanted to believe it, right? There was something going on in their business. It was 2015, and and you know they're, you're running a, a Norwegian pension plan, and and your trustees are saying, how come we're paying so much for hedge funds? And somebody comes along and says, you know, we've got this magical, low cost hedge fund strategy that has no correlation to anything and gives you six percent per annum. It was all made up, but it was irresistible. And and they didn't. And they and the people that they asked whether it would work were other people who were creating products. So, 
Um, I think that dynamic goes on all the time in the asset management world. You mentioned that, that this wasn't the regime change that you, that you were planning for. I mean, looking at it today, do you think all the apples have, have fallen from the tree yet? Bear in mind, we're recording this 1st of November um, for the listeners. Yeah. For the listener, if this goes out late November, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, by then, <laughs> um, I, look, nobody knows. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, we, we've had, what we've, what we've had in these markets is a, um, uh, we've, we've had tremendously violent shifts in consensus, kind of on a, almost on a month to month basis. Um, and, but, but they're all bets on the future direction of interest rates and what the Fed does and does this drive the world and, and, but, really, really serious guys who spend their lives thinking about this are on the record as saying, you know, we have a series of issues lined up in front of us that are not, this is not Tylenol caliber stuff. I mean, we have, we have, you know, sort of the excesses that we've talked about will probably take years to wring out of the system. We haven't had any, we haven't had our Lehman or our Enron moment um, where you've had the true dislocations. Uh, I hope we won't. Um, but it's, it's lingering out there. We, you know, if somebody had said at the beginning of 2010, um, central banks and governments have $40 trillion burning a hole in their pocket and they're going to spend it and not create inflation for 10 years, people would have thought that was, you know, an absurd statement. Um, so, you know, we have deglobalization, which is a real problem. We've got a fracturing of the global political order. We have a, a war in Europe. I mean, it is, it is a daunting list of things that we have. Um, and so I think, you know, the general view among serious macro guys is this is a multi-year process, which is problematic for traditional asset classes, problematic for a lot of areas of the market. You know, we haven't started to see defaults in, in the corporate loan market. Um, but if things, you know, people are saying, oh, well, it's, you know, we're kind of relieved there's going to be a massive recession next year, which is going to be, so the Fed's not, you know, can pivot a little bit earlier. That doesn't sound like a great scenario. Yeah, I, I'm interested to know. So we've had the the grey and the good uh, of the investment world on this on this podcast, if I don't say so myself. Um, but one of the things I say, sixty to seventy percent of them have come a cropper with options. Now these are smart people. What do you put that down to? So when you say when you say when you say came with options, what do you mean? Like ways to make money in this, or or they they didn't they didn't properly understand them and lost money. They 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 felt like they could play the options market and, and, and win without, I guess without really it was understanding. earlier in their career as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the markets are really, really tough, right? And, and, and even when you, one of the things I learned very, very early on is you can have a great trade where you are 80% likely to double your money and still lose, right? The 20% still happens. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I, I think when you're, when you're, you know, so like, like some of the crypto proponents um, uh, were people who had failing businesses and needed to pivot, right? Any, any some one, of them, anyone in mind? Well, I mean, it's you know, I mean, I mean, the, some of the big proponents were were fund of funds guys who had who had businesses that had been good for everybody but the clients for a long time, and and there's you know there's a long complicated story in that, um, but uh, you know some of the People who are most dubious of inflation had portfolios that were loaded with tech stocks whose valuations were dependent upon low inflation. Uh, look, I am, you know, our, our business is hedge fund replication. You know, it's, there are great counterexamples to our business. Um, you know, when people say, should we invest with you? 
in an ETF with low fees and daily liquidity, or should we invest in, with Millennium? My answer is invest with Millennium. I don't know what they're doing, but it is absolutely magical. And, and they have spent 25 years trying to figure out not to be the next long-term capital. And you give them a dollar, they turn it into 10, and they seem to make money with, without blowing up. I could be wrong tomorrow. But, but you know, I think the, the, the heart, particularly with this, with this kind of social media thing that we have today, is, is, is most people who are talking about their opinions on things are selling something in some fashion. And, and everybody has, everybody is kind of the, is anchored to the previous predictions that they've made. And, and, you know, so somebody who has launched a business on the basis of crypto is not going to turn around and tell you that the things are going to zero. I'm not, I don't, I don't know that they are, they're not, but, but I just, I'm just saying the, the, the information value of that person's prediction is zero or negative. Fantastic. Well, that was our interview with Andrew Beer. And Franco, I think, I mean, you know, a lot in there, a lot to unpack, some very interesting points. What were your, what jumped out to you? Lo- loads in there. He talked, as I said, really eloquently about, about investment bubbles and the fact that they anesthetize you. His example of getting a relative bargain, feeling he was doing well, but within a bubble, it's still overpriced. And I think that applies to, I don't know, picking up a stock in a sector which on a relative valuation looks cheaper than its, than its peers. For, for, for not a, not a good enough reason um and also you know finding those people within a bubble important to find the people albeit minorities who who disagree with why something is priced a certain way in fact find some someone disagreeing with your thesis the whole time when making investment bubble or not and and explore what you're not looking at to try and counter your behavioral biases yeah i thought that was a fantastic point because it also it um it bridges across, you know, whether you're running a managed futures fund, whether you're investing in property, whether you're, you know, a PM advisor, uh, or you know, idiots like us. Uh, it's it's really important, isn't it? And it's something that everyone can do, but probably doesn't do or don't do that much because you know we t- we tend to surround ourselves with like-minded people. You know, we we like people who agree with us more than we like people who disagree with us. Um, and yeah, basically confirmation bias. Yeah, it's just natural hu- human behavior, and also. He was full of great sort of adages about what to look out for. Look at who's doing the talking. Are they talking out your own book? Obviously, that's the basics, but really kind of drill down into, you know, at the moment, people have been really successful, made their names in this rally. It's 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 take, taken them to the top, and it's very difficult for them to relinquish their grip on that philosophy and, and or their success. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, it sort of harks back to something that Rajiv Jain told us in sort of episode two of the series which is you know people are anchored to the past aren't they they're anchored to what they've what's worked previously and identifying a regime change is one thing but actually like shifting your approach to go with it it is another and people are you know naturally reluctant to do it if they've had great success um you know doing a particular thing he was quite humble as well about the fact you can get the macro call right, but but actually figuring out how that's going to play out in markets is, is entirely different and, and much harder. You can you can be right like Jeremy Grantham for years, uh, and and it not materialise. And so you need to respect the fact that that bubbles have a sort of life of their own, and and they they do continue going up as much as you might not want them, want them to. I like some of the stuff uh, that he was saying about the hedge fund space. Uh, and actually, he was quite full of praise of conventional, some conventional headphones, saying, if you can afford the minimums, you should buy that, not my product, which you don't hear that every day. Well, again, yeah, but, you know, perhaps that's, you know, the right thing to be hearing, isn't it? You know, who's who's saying it? Are they selling something? If they're not, then maybe, you know, 
that's that's something worth listening to a little bit more um i thought that was good i thought again he was good on liquid alts too because you know it's sort of controversial is the wrong word but but it's a it's a it's a product that or a, a rapper i suppose that hasn't quite necessarily had his time until this year um but he thinks going forward you know it probably will have a little bit more representation in retail portfolios yeah, but he he wasn't particularly complimentary about them and saying that ultimately a lot of it was, was fee pressure induced looking somewhere where I can charge 200 basis points versus, you know, Vanguard, which is giving you away for free. The fund groups went there and I think you could probably say there were parallels towards the, the back end of, of the bubble in, in private assets as well, where people were trying to wrap products they probably shouldn't have. And, and now we've seen, or even de- indeed selling private assets to, to people who shouldn't have been buying them. Oh, that's a big thing. I think the fallout of that is still is still to come. Um, but I'm here for it as a journalist. So excited, excited to cover those blow ups. Um, cool. Well, look, I think I think that's I think that's good, right? Is there unless there was anything I missed? I think that the one point that you missed is that talking about today's market is that the excesses probably are going to take years to unwind, you know, this, this debt fueled rally that we had over the last decade or so. So a multi-year unwinding from here on in, that's probably too sad a news to finish on. Uh, it feels sad, but it's where we are. And I think, uh, if, if we do nothing else in this podcast, it's respect the goddamn truth. Um, no, anyway, that's where we're going to end. So it's goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.